The year is 1942. Of all the podcasts in all the towns in all the world, you listen to Oz. The movie, Casablanca. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And this is the podcast where, for the last 99 episodes, we have watched one film from the AFI's Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time list, the 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say, do they hold up, and how have they influenced the films that we watch now. Today, we'll be talking about Casablanca. But before we get into that, we are going to talk a little bit about last week's film, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Now, this is officially our last episode of season one. We're going to be branching off into season two, but before we do that, uh, we want to make sure that you tune in next week for a big recap episode. We're going to be breaking down the list, what we thought about it. It's going to be a big celebration of the AFI list as we prepare to move on. But um, we'll tell you a little bit more about that at the end of the episode. Amy, what do people think about Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid? I mean, does it belong on the list? Should it be kicked off? Well, people like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I got a lovely email from my aunt and uncle who really love Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But a lot of people said, you know, sure, but I think it needs to stack up against The Sting instead, like the preferred movie from this team uh, by, by a large margin of people. And so I think that is uh, one more entry point into everything we're going to be doing in season two, which is... Going big with it and also granular with it. What are the stuff that we have on this list that we like and what can we maybe replace with something slightly better? A conversation we've been having all the way back since swing time. Well, I think a lot of people also really connected with our discussion about how uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid represented the end of an era, right? This idea that new things are coming, technology, whatever it might be, like the death of the old of the old Western even. Uh, And so I felt like uh, we got a lot of props for having that reading as many people also had that same reading. For me, I I think the choice is really uh, the sting or slap shot. What would you put on the list? I mean, Hanson Brothers or Jackie Gleason? I mean, your choice. (laughs) Well, you know that my heart is with Ben O'Connor who wrote in, listen, if we are going to do a William Goldman film, there are so many Westerns. If we want a film that really plays around with genre tropes and has something to say about the clash of romantic and modern sensibilities, that movie is The Princess Bride. I just saw that movie. It was so good. It had all those different actors playing all those different roles. Yes, that's what a movie usually is. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Uh, oh, by the way, Kip Mooney agreed with me that Slapshot should be on the AFI list. I don't really know if I believe that, but uh, I do like Slapshot. Um This is actually really interesting. We've had um, some very famous uh, Twitter followers, uh, and one of the famous ones is the 520 Bridge. It's a bridge who has uh, a personality, and that bridge uh, said that uh, they really enjoyed Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Couldn't listen through the uh, bridge over the river quiet. Just kind of hit too close to home because obviously there's a little bit of bridge destruction there. There is. I wonder how the 520 Bridge feels about um, a little movie called The General, another bridge-blowing-up movie. Are we just so violent to Bridges? Does Jeff Bridges know about this? Should we do the Bridges of Madison <laughs> County for the second season if 520 Bridge more, will listen? 
don't spoil what our second season is going to be. Only bridge movies. Um, <laughs> bridge over Terabithia, man. Ooh, that book and movie screwed me up. Um, and then let's finally get into our last comment from Marina Carlson. Um, she writes, I really love the cinematography, and I never thought I'd say this, but the editing. I saw a lot of very modern cuts in this film, and I was surprised to see a movie from 1969. Uh, we saw the fun biking montage, for example, with a modern song, which feels like a template that's been used over and over again, even in something like 21 Jump Street. Uh, the one thing I need to talk about for at least three hours is the fact that our three leads are a straight-up thruple. I've got some major homoerotic vibes coming from this movie, and I got the feeling that uh, this was a 1,000% three-way couple. What do you think, Amy? Was it a thruple? Well, I don't know about that, but I think the movie does establish that maybe there's nothing wrong if one person can't satisfy all of your needs. What if you need one person to laugh with and one person to make you undress while you're incredibly nervous? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> well, you know what? I... Uh, I do think there was something really interesting about that relationship and looking at it as a thruple, um, it kind of works. I feel like there is, you know, look, they both men loved her and she traveled with them and, you know, I don't know, maybe if they made it now, there would have been a thruple in here. Maybe you couldn't broach that in 1969. Or maybe what really matters is that there's just a lot of love in the world. And if you're only going to live a short life before you get machine gunned to death uh, south of the border, you may as well love as many people as possible in whatever way that is. Well, Amy, uh, talking about, you know, the, the, the shortness of life or the fleetingness of, of love, uh, it's about time for us to start talking about Casablanca. Um, and we gave you an interesting task last week. We said, do Casablanca lines in a different voice than a traditional Humphrey Bogart voice. I know that that's probably the go-to, but let's like listen to this odd mashup that we made you do. Round up the usual suspects. Play it again, Sam. And then you have my permission to die. Hear me now and believe me later. We'll always have Paris. But I've got a job to do, too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. Wow. I'm shocked. Shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. I'm no good at being noble. And it doesn't take much to see the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. <laughs> maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. Rick, eh? I'm going to miss you, eh? Apparently, you're the only one in Casablanca with less scruples than me. Oh, kiss me. Kiss me as if it were for the last time. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Well, we'll always have Paris, doggone it. We didn't have, we, we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. Now, 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 now here. Here's looking at you, kid. I think there was a walk-in in there. I'm not sure if that was Canadian or walk-in. <laughs> well, I think what really uh, warms my heart and makes me feel like there is endless amounts of love is this podcast and all of our listeners and our absolute love for Jimmy Stewart, the king, the yes. king, the king for all the reasons so named. May he reign. 
I agree 100%. Uh, Amy, before we get into today's final film, just a reminder, you can pick up our poster at Podswag, designed by the amazing Scott Campbell. It looks beautiful. And now, uh, hopefully, you've checked off all the boxes on that poster. Um, It's been a wild journey. And here we go for our last film. Amy, would you like to do the honors of saying what I like to say at the end of every first act here? Oh, gosh. If I could only do this like Jimmy Stewart, I'll just do it like me. Let's unspool it. Yes! <laughs> Around up the usual suspects. It's 1942 and the United States joins the war, making it officially a world war. The second one. War bonds are introduced, raising... $13 billion. Disney's fifth animated feature, Bambi, premieres. Its original release actually loses money. The Women's Coast Guard Auxiliary is established, wherein women stepping in for men at their jobs so they could go to war would get equal salary, status, and benefits. The U.S. conducts an air raid on Tokyo. Johnson & Johnson developed a tape so good at sealing, water ran off it like a duck. Hence, they called it duct tape. Hot movies include Yankee Doodle Dandy, Bambi, and today's topic, Casablanca. It comes in at number three on the AFI's top 100 list in 2007, down from its number two position on the 1997 list. Let's take a listen to this classic. Don't you sometimes wonder if it's worth all this? I mean, what you're fighting for. You might as well question why we breathe. If we stop breathing, we'll die. We stop fighting our enemies, the world will die. What of it? It'll be out of his misery. You know how you sound, Monsieur Blaine? Like a man who's trying to convince himself of something he doesn't believe in his heart. Each of us has a destiny, for good or for evil. I get the point. I wonder if you do. I wonder if you know that you're trying to escape from yourself. And that you'll never succeed. You seem to know all about my destiny. I know a good deal more about you than you suspect. Amy, Casablanca, who's in it? What's it about? Well, Paul, I'm happy to tell you. But before I do that, I'm going to shake up this French 75 because this is our last film. And it's breaking my heart. And they drink French 75s in Casablanca. And if you at home wish to drink a French 75 with us too, what, champagne? You got your simple syrup. You got your gin. You got your lemon. And you got your lemon peel. All right. If you don't want to hear me shake this, cover your ears. Oh, it's very quiet. <laughs> oh, Amy, my ears, my ears. Oh, no. I'm shaking a real martini glass and everything. I sounded a, a real shaker shaker. I was so fancy. All right, I'm going to pour it. And as I pour it, I will tell you that this is the epic, wonderful, giant studio romance that kind of defined the best of what the studio system could do when you have big bosses and actors fighting with their directors and everybody being like, let's make the best film possible. This is just a job. Here we are doing a good job on this movie. And the people doing a good job. You have a director we've had around a lot. Michael Curtis, he is our director. You have a really strong producer at the helm. This is another one of those like 1940s. The producer is a really big creative boss. The boss here being Hal B. Wallace. And of course, in the cast, you've got none other than Humphrey Bogart, breaking out of his tough gangster image to play Rick Blaine, a man who operates a bar called Rick's in Casablanca, which has become a real 
hotbed of just international intrigue. Everybody's coming in and out of Casablanca to figure out where they need to go during the war and how to stay safe. And some of the people in his bar include his ex-girlfriend, Ingrid Bergman, as uh, the Swedish woman Elsa Lund, her husband, Paul Heinrich, as Victor Laszlo, and the local cop, Claude Rains, as Captain Renault, and of course, tiny people that I adore very much, like Peter Lorre from Ugarte and Sidney Greenstreet as Senior Ferrari. So we're having, in a way, a Maltese Falcon reunion happening in this movie. Right. This is kind of a spiritual sequel, if you will, to Maltese Falcon. Like it, it brings together all these characters once again to recreate this magic, even though I think the popular opinion at the time was maybe this wouldn't work. I don't think that people thought that this movie was going to be as big as it was. No, they thought it was going to be fine. They thought it was going to be good. You know, back in the studio system, they had what they called A pictures and B pictures. It's not too different from what we have today. You know, sort of mutated over the years into like theatrical and on demand or theatrical and video store. Yeah, like you have your A pictures, you know, the movies with Gerard Butler fighting hurricanes or driving a big rig. And then you have your B pictures, which is like Adam Driver feeling emotion. Yeah, I get it. Yes, you definitely get it. You absolutely get it. We've done a hundred movies and you get it so intensely. Finally. I got it, Amy. I got it. <laughs> but yeah, Casablanca was never considered a B picture. It's considered an A picture. It's like, we got our good people here. We got we got Humphrey Bogart. He is a huge star. Ingrid Bergman was suddenly this new sensation. You know, she shows up in Hollywood from making European films and she just had a different look. You know, at the time, like women in Hollywood had more of a shellacked, heavy makeup, dark lipstick, big eyebrows, Joan Crawford look, to be honest. They had a Joan mm-hmm. Crawford look. And she comes in like this breath of European fresh air is how people saw her. You know, her hair wasn't that done. Her makeup wasn't that heavy. So she was exciting. She was like, a, ooh, who's that kind of person? Well, talking about this like European flair, this whole entire film is filled with these amazing background performers, all these people who have small parts. One of the the first people that we meet in the film who runs from the police when they want to check his papers, you know, is an established actor who came to the States, everyone kind of fleeing Germany at the time. So you have all these amazing actors that are taking much smaller parts because they are trying to make their way in America. So I think that's why this film also looks um, authentic. It doesn't look like the back lot of a Hollywood picture, even though it was shot there, it did have different faces all around. Yeah, it was completely the back lot of a Hollywood picture. You're right. I mean, watching this film, what really caught my eye straight away when it began is our first entrance into Rick's bar because you are hearing just this multitude of voices from all over the world. And they've all got schemes and they've all got plans. And you just have this I think a melting pot that I find really unusual, even on this list. I don't think we've had a melting pot like we have in this film of people representing. I think they said on set they had maybe 22 nationalities working like on on set, off the set. And you hear a little bit of that right here in this clip. Waiting, waiting, waiting. I'll never get out of here. I'll die in Casablanca. But can't you make it just a little more? Sorry, madame, but diamonds are a drug on the market. Everybody sells diamonds. There are diamonds everywhere. 2,400. All right. The clocks are ready. The men are waiting. Everything. It's the fishing smacks and the agro. It leaves at one tomorrow night. Here from the end of La Madina. 
third boat. Thank you, thank you. And bring the 15,000 francs in cash. Remember, in cash. I think another element that makes this movie really fascinating is that it was based on a play that took place, you know, uh, before World War II is really starting. And then this movie comes out at a time and it's happening at a time where intentions are much higher. So it's an interesting juxtaposition of where the characters are and where the people who actually experience this are. You know, it's like it's the beginning. And when this comes out, it's it's getting to be a, a very like a fevered pitch. No, you're exactly right. I I think what never hit me until this watch of Casablanca is how much we're watching a refugee story. You know? Yes. It, it's very much a refugee story. And I feel like you change a couple of the details and this is happening today. It's just happened in the opposite direction. People from Africa trying to make it to safety in Europe, trying to make it into to find asylum and shelter. That's how it was, I think, before COVID and the whole world got locked down or here on this border. And this idea of refugees being stuck. It, it, I was I was really struck in this watch, you know, because I, I appreciate following the news about people trying to sail across the sea to get to Europe to try to find safety there from North Africa. And just thinking like, I want I want a movie with the humanity of Casablanca to tell this story today, you know? Yeah, I think what also struck me in watching this film, and I want to tell you something about watching this film in a second, but uh, was how much of a melting pot it was. You talked about that at the beginning, but very few films on the list feel as international as this. You know, it feels very much like uh, oftentimes an American in a foreign place against a foreign culture where here every character felt integrated. You know, even uh, Sidney Greenstreet's character, his original idea was that he wanted to be so into the culture of the of the town, the city, that he wanted to dress in traditional garb, but this movie studio wanted him to dress in all white. So, you know, the instincts were to really show that this is a, a bustling town. There, This isn't an American story. You're right. This is a refugee story. And I think I was just struck by that difference in all the films that we've seen, you know, that this is really an international film. You're right. Like in this movie, it feels like America is just another place on the map, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way that it hasn't felt. We've had other movies before that take place on the opposite ends of the world. You know, our Vietnam movies, African Queen. But this is the one where it did. Wizard of Oz. Yeah. (laughs) This is what. Well, there's no place like home in the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Here. uh, Here. It's more like Rick Blaine is like, do not send me home. I do not want to go home for reasons I cannot tell you. I actually found a clip of the playwright talking about his inspiration. This came from a trip he took where he sat in a hotel lobby and looked around at the world. We arrived in Vienna at night and this frightened woman met us. And she said, you know, there's only one hotel you can go to in Vienna. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, we've booked you into the Hotel de France. That's the only hotel that takes Jews. So I said, okay. And then... In the Hotel de France, people sat around in the lobby reading letters from somewhere and crying. It was the most depressing, horrible situation that I'd ever been in in my life. Now, you might ask, well, you know, what were you doing there? (laughs) I wasn't starting an underground railroad. The idea was these people were going to leave. 
hopefully at some time they were going to get out. They were going to use the refugee trail, as I stated in the play. But they needed money, and they weren't allowed to take money out of Austria or Germany at that, or Italy. It might just be my mood, but as a person who loves to travel and can't travel, this movie tore my stomach into guts. You know, it just, I really, I, I got the hunger. I was thinking about you today because they opened up uh, both Disneyland resorts and I was like, oh, Amy, I know it wouldn't give to be at those Disneyland places <laughs> the first day open, the first day back to be walking around Epcot, just taking in all the sights. Um this is what I wanted to reveal to you, Amy. I haven't had a moment to really to tell you this yet, but this is our hundredth film, and this is the first time I've seen Casablanca. <laughs> Never have seen this movie. I have seen moments of it, but never from start to finish. I thought I might have, but then I realized as I was watching, I was like, never saw this movie. I, Whoa. you know, I know the play it again, Sam yeah. moment. I know the, I know how it ended, which was kind of a bummer in watching it because I saw it. You know, I've seen that again, uh, tip my hat to Walt Disney World's uh, great movie ride at MGM Studios. Uh, and they have that whole recreation of that scene, but I'd never seen it from start to finish. And it is the second film on this list that after I watched it, I immediately started to rewatch it. Citizen Kane and this, I just kind of was captured fully by them and immediately went to just rewatch it. I, I very rarely do that, especially because I watch movies so late at night that to go back, I didn't go to sleep until like three in the morning last night because I, I kind of watched it back to back. I watched half of it with Roger Ebert's commentary on it, too, which is great. But um, yeah, I absolutely love this movie and I'm blown away by it and I have so many thoughts on it. But I wanted you to know that this is a, I am a Casablanca virgin. <laughs> well, you were. Now you've been a, around was. the Casablanca yeah. a couple of times. But that's, <laughs> I mean, I love that those are the two movies because I was thinking about this in Citizen Kane too. As we were getting ready to record, I was thinking, these are two of the best movies on this list and they couldn't be more different, even though they're made from around the same time period. You know, I, I think of one as this autorist vision, you know, I'm going to make my thing. I'm going to do it. Here I am. I'm going to star in it. This is my movie. You're giving me a green light to do it. I'm going to take this green light. Even if I make some enemies, we'll see what happens along the way. And then there's this one that is like, we're hired to do this. This is just a job. We're going to show up. We're going to do it fine. It's an ensemble piece. It's really like a studio made manufacturing stamp. And it, 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 it shows that you know, I think there's this great divide between like, are you an auteurist person? Do you like these movies made by these weirdo masterpieces who are like, I'm a crazy person and maybe I'm impossible to get along with, but here I am. Or do you believe that collaboration makes stuff better? And I toggle back and forth between them incessantly. And so I think there's something mm. amazing in the fact that these are two of the top three movies on the list. And they just are the exemplars of both of these styles of filmmaking. I want to yeah. think I'm more on the ensemble side, to be honest, because I, th I think I just get so irritated by a lot of the geniuses. I think they're exhausting, or a lot of the people who, who think they're I geniuses. I often aren't. believe, though, that an auteur just hides his helpers or her helpers away um, and doesn't share the spotlight, right? Oh, that's true. Um, because there are amazing people. If you look at somebody like Stanley Kubrick, there were people that he worked with time and time again because of the trust level and, and a belief and they knew how to work together. And I believe that that is 
even though there is a, a strong vision, there are people behind the scenes that are helping make these choices. And uh, if we were going to go on, on the spectrum, you could have, you know, an Orson Welles. And then you can maybe in the middle, I think it's a little bit like Scorsese, who uses the same actors, uses the same editor, you know, I, I think speaks so fondly of the movie making process, but still makes very quintessential Scorsese films. They feel like a Scorsese film. And then I think you have someone like Michael Curtis, who I was kind of blown away by. I know you said we visited him before, but he's a director whose name is not synonymous with being a great director in my in my mind, in the sense of the pantheon of directors. And yet he is responsible for this film that is iconic but he is an example of a director who I think in many respects lets the actors and everything take focus. That There's not um, crazy camera moves. You talk about the first time we go into the club. That's really one of the few like moving shots in this film. You know, every move is deliberate. It doesn't feel like it's for show. And I agree to really appreciate the way that he directed this film, but it's incredibly simple. Um comparatively to a lot of the films that we've watched. I mean, that's true. If it was a jewelry setting, it would be like a, a delicate jewelry setting that lets the gem itself shine. I mean, this is the same guy who in this year made Yankee Doodle Dandy. He did Casablanca mm-hmm. and Yankee Doodle Dandy in the same year. He, I mean, he also made a film I really love, which is Mildred Pierce. He made The Adventures of Robin Hood, which is another film that is beloved, especially by my buddy Brian Cogman, if you're listening. Hi, Brian. <laughs> I mean, but you're right. Like he has just this list of heavy hitters and people don't think of them as Michael Curtis films, which I wonder, I mean, I wonder if he was offended by that or yeah. And and I wonder like, I mean, my instinct is to be like, poor Michael Curtis. But then I'm also like, what if that's the way of things? What if that's fine? I I think there is something really interesting about this style of director. And I don't mean to uh, disparage him at all, but I think there are certain directors who really have no ego. And I, recently, the director I often think about when I think about this is someone like Michael Showalter, who made uh, The Big Sick. He made this great movie with uh, Sally Field uh, before that. Um, he isn't trying to show you, like, look at what I'm doing over here. Like, he really lets the actors and the script come to life in a way that I kind of find refreshing, you know, because I think it's so everyone's trying to make their mark, right? So you want to have that one or you want to, you want to show that you are worthy of something. And I think it's a sign of a confident, assured hand behind the camera that allows the work to be elevated. And, and, and not to say that anybody who doesn't do that isn't a good director, but I'm, I, I'm kind of always drawn to it because you don't often think of the directors when you think of these movies, but when you go, Oh, but the performances were great. Oh, it looked amazing. Oh, the casting. That's all the director, you know, oh, the story came like, like the director has a hand in all of that. But I feel like when you don't feel the director, you just assume that they were behind the camera going cut in action and that's it. They had no other say. And, and I think if you look at his body of work, you can see like, oh, he knew how to shoot multiple styles of things, work with amazing actors, get great performances out of them. And, you know, Humphrey Bogart is a perfect example of this. This is a a very different role for Humphrey Bogart that he was not used to at all. And and this kind of explodes him into a whole nother genre as a leading man. 
Yeah, but I think when they when they pitched the idea of having Humphrey Bogart star in this movie, one of the things that Harry Warner said, who was the head of the studio, is he was like, who the hell would ever want to kiss Bogart? She was like, nobody wants to kiss Bogart. Nobody wants to see Bogart in this role. Nobody wants to see Bogart as a romantic leading man. They really only thought of him as a stone-cold evil killer because that had been the majority of what he played. I mean, this is a guy who last year was kissing the woman at the end of Maltese Falcon and being like, have fun in Tehachapi. See you later. Right. You know, I think, though, that this character spawns a type of character that we have grown to love in cinema. And I'll draw the the, the cleanest line, not the first time that we see it, but this is our Indiana Jones, this is our Han Solo, you know, this man... You know, or has all the the trappings of like a traditional tough man, but then has these uh, this emotional side, this way that you can connect to them. Like, I believe that Humphrey Bogart is on the run and that he could run this club and that he would pull a gun on someone and that he would be able to grift and work this town because he there's a level to him that is a little bit scary, right? He can, he belongs in these places. And going back to the Han Solo thing, like Han Solo belongs in that cantina, you know, Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker does not. And I feel like, uh, you know, this movie at one point, even though it probably isn't true, they announced the movie to star Ronald Reagan, but then Ronald Reagan was called up to service. So he didn't do the film. And there's a, there's a thought that he was never even really fully considered. But if you put someone like Ronald Reagan in this film, he would not have that gravitas. Like you need someone who looks a little beaten down, a little world worn. Uh, and I think it's a character that we search for to this day. We want that kind of grizzled, but emotionally centered person. I, I think that this is a, this archetype was really set in place by Humphrey Bogart. I mean, do you think that, or am I crazy for drawing that comparison? No, I like that theory a lot. It, I mean, quick aside really fast on the Ronald Reagan thing. Yeah, it does seem like they just announced that he was going to be in this movie, basically just to say we're making this movie and here's a person who will be in uh, this movie or or not, but this movie is coming. Maybe just to squat on it, to be like, we have the name Casablanca. This is our film. We're doing it. We're doing it. We're doing it. But it is funny to imagine a world where what if Ronald Reagan was in this movie and what if it was still really good? Would he have been a bigger movie star? And if he was a bigger movie star, would he have just stayed in Hollywood and not run for governor of California. Like, oh, would our I mean, entire history off, have been changed if, if Ronald Reagan have, had been in this movie and been good in it still? You you know, Jeb Bush would be our president. That's what would happen. It would be he would be the first Bush to Jeb. ever run for president. <laughs> Jeb. Uh, no, but I but no, there there are I mean, there are amazing what ifs here. Uh, yeah, but to your point, because I think your point is really interesting. I mean, I wonder a lot about this character, like the kind of guy who is a really good guy, but won't admit it. I mean, here, for example, when um, Renault is trying to accuse him of being a good person deep down, of being a sentimentalist. Whatever gave you the impression that I might be interested in helping Laszlo escape? Because, my dear Ricky, I suspect that under that cynical shell, you're at heart a sentimentalist. Oh, laugh if you will, but I happen to be familiar with the record. Let me point out just two items. In 1935, you ran guns to Ethiopia. In 1936... You fought in Spain on the loyalist side. And got well paid for it on both occasions. The winning side would have paid you much better. Maybe. <laughs> well, it seems that you're determined to keep Laszlo here. I have my orders. Oh, I see. Gestapo's bank. My dear Ricky, you overestimate the influence of the Gestapo. I don't interfere with them. And they don't interfere with me. 
In Casablanca, I am master of my fate. I am Major Captain... Strassworth here, sir. Hey, you were saying... Excuse me. I, mean, I have to admit, Paul, like, what if this kind of person doesn't really exist? Have you met a person like this before? Like, what if we all have, as a culture, have convinced ourselves that every tough guy is secretly really, really sweet if we give him a chance? And what if this is the thing that has ruined dating for like every every person on earth who falls in love? I mean, with the wrong look, kind I, th- of guy. I don't think <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. I think we always are looking to crack into that that shell. Uh, you know, it becomes an archetype. You know, oh, you gotta you gotta know him. But I think most people have humanity, right? And I think that that's what people will say about even the most evil of us. You know, it, it, like uh, you know that there is. They're, they don't believe that they're evil, right? They don't believe that they lack humanity. So very much so, like, whoever that person is, picture whoever you think is awful. I'm sure they have interests. I'm sure they like to go fishing or paint or whatever the thing may be. And if you spend time with them, you'd be like, oh, that person isn't bad. It, but knowing nothing of their outside world. But if you just yeah. met them one-on-one, you know. Um, it's I was okay that they slash my tires. They catch a really big bass every Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, 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 I do believe that most people besides serial killers don't and maybe even serial killers don't view themselves as bad people. Like, right. It's a, they believe they're doing something right They're They're being just they're giving voice to the voiceless, whatever the whatever the situation might be, you know. And um, but I was going to say I was thinking about this comparison of the tough guy with the, the inner shell. Clark Gable, also one of the names that's swirled around this role to me. Humphrey Bogart and Clark Gable are like Roger Moore and Sean Connery, right? There is something about Clark Gable that's a little Hollywood, you know, it's a little like not smarmy, but I think he's great. But there is um, there's a little bit of a Hollywoodness to him, right? Like that maybe I don't know if I'm going to say cheeky because I don't know if I would say Clark Gable is cheeky, but there's something about him. I would say he's cheeky. that you can say. He's uh, well, cheeky. I. I maybe I'll say he's cheeky, but I like if you put Clark Gable and Humphrey Bogart here, I believe that Humphrey Bogart could hold himself together in this in this town and in this bar. Like whereas I feel like again, Clark Gable's the movie version of that. The same way I feel about Sean Connery in uh, in early uh, in all the James Bonds, not the last one, Never Say Die. Uh, right, that's the one that he did outside of the broccoli system. Uh, the uh, but the like that idea of like that toughness, that that extra edge to them, which I, I really uh, kind of like. So I'm, I'm thinking about that as well. Like, who is the person that you believe can actually get into a bar fight, right? Like that, you know, and uh, I think we're always chasing that. And sometimes we put too many pretty boys in that role. Uh, I also believe that you can do this on the on the female side, too. I think like Charlize Theron is an amazing example of someone who is like, oh, she could kick your fucking ass. Like she can hold down with anybody. And then she's incredibly human, too. And she's like, you know, like it's but it's that's a rare combo, I, I think. I don't think Robert Downey Jr. is that. And I think Robert Downey Jr. is a great big movie star, but he's more on the 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 uh, Clark Gable side of it. Like, yes, he's the guy, you know, but I don't I don't believe he's going to throw down. No, I I don't know why this just thought in my head, but I was like, imagine if they had made a modern Casablanca, if this one had never existed. Um, and it was like James Gandolfini or something, because I'm realizing yes. I have a thing yes. for romances where you believe she loves him for his personality, too. I mean, the thing yeah. with Clark Gable is he's just Clark Gable. You know, he could slash her tires and go fishing, whatever. But you'd be like, it's Clark Gable. So it's fine. 
And so th- there's something in a man where you're like, oh no, I really, I really specifically see what's special about you, which is kind of a game that Humphrey Bogart played on Ingrid Bergman during the whole shooting. He was a little bit nervous about being this romantic guy. It wasn't who he was supposed to be. And so one of his friends gave him this tip. They're like, okay, here's what you do in your scenes with her. You stand still and you make her walk to you as much as you can. Stand still and have her come to you to keep the scene going, to keep the dialogue going, because it will subconsciously tell the audience that you are irresistible. They're like, if you keep doing this, she might notice and get annoyed, but I guarantee you Michael Curtis won't notice and get annoyed and people will just absorb the idea that you have this magnetism. Well, but I guess it works because the chemistry that they have is palpable and the chemistry she has with her with her husband Victor is is not there it feels at best fraternal you were talking though about who could pull this movie off and I wanted to I wanted to get your take on a real kind of a Humphrey Bogart person like yes Gandolfini but think about Ashton Kutcher Ashton Kutcher <laughs> and Madonna that was the movie that in the early 2000s was going around. Madonna was trying to remake Casablanca with her and Ashton Kutcher. Oh, no. No one bought it, but she went around. Uh, they said the film is untouchable. You cannot remake it. But Madonna and Kutch? No. In the early 2000s, he didn't even have a wrinkle. Madonna and Willem Dafoe, maybe. But, I mean, Body of Evidence reunion. But, uh, I, I mean, still, I, you know, I also don't believe madonna would be perfect for this role either i mean i'm really breaking it down but imagine of that that remake the two of them i can't picture at all i i thought you might say michael shannon because i feel like michael shannon would slide right into this and i would die Mm -hmm. like if michael shannon was in this movie it would be my favorite movie of all time oh i think there's a lot of i think there's a lot of like men in independent cinema that could that could pull this off that you know they have that kind of uh, tough guy, tender guy thing. I, I'm trying to think of who could do the Ilsa role. I don't know why my mind just went to ScarJo, but maybe that's just because there's a similarity in their faces a little bit. Um, but I wonder. Uh, you know, the first person I thought of was Gugu Mbatha Raw for some reason. She ooh. has that same real good heartedness that I think mm. Ingrid Bergman has in this, that same kind of purity of spirit. And you can imagine two men. Almost wrecking, you know, the destruction of the Third Reich to win her heart. Do you know, uh, speaking about different castings and stuff, you know, uh, obviously Rick's right-hand man, the person who's been with him and and Elsa this entire time, has the whole backstory, is Sam. Right? Play it again, Sam, the piano player. We know Sam. Uh, The studio wanted it to be a woman, which I thought was such an interesting would be a terrible choice, uh, even though they considered people like Lena Horne and Ella Fitzgerald, who would have been amazing. But wouldn't it have been terrible to have another? It, it would have created it. It upset the whole. It would upset the whole balance. They like, couldn't have another woman there, you know, to to feed off of this triangle. Like it would. It, I think even if they were best friends, it would be so hard. I, but I'm just like that misstep would have been, I think, huge for the film. No, you're right because in movie language. If a guy has a best friend who he adores and you're like, well, you can't be with that girl. If you can't be with the girl that he really loves, they're going to wind up at the end of the movie. They're going to wind up and they're going to be happy. Yeah. Right. You would just be like, I expect him to get farmed off on Lena Horn, which is amazing. You would be lucky to wind up with Lena Horn. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, of course. I mean, you would want that. I mean, yeah, it's uh, and I think what I love about this story 
you know, he would never open. I don't think he would ever really open his heart to another woman. I mean, we see what is his girlfriend that the woman is getting drunk at the bar in the beginning. Like, you know, like that's the level of relationships that he's having right now. Yeah, Yvonne, uh, she's so funny. She's great, but it's sort of like so like who cares? Like she's so disposable, you know, uh, but does a great job. True. But then having Sam as this person, I mean, Sam kind of functions as his exterior conscience, right? Like when you have mm-hmm. that conversation between Ilsa and Sam, where they recognize yeah. each other, they talk, she tells him to play the song. You hear him spinning all these lies to try to protect Rick so that he doesn't have to play the song. And it's almost like Sam's protectiveness of Rick makes us protective of Rick. Like if we see somebody else care for this guy who's acting like I'm fine, don't need anything. I'm a cold ass person. Like it's okay. Then we're, we're like, okay, he's fine. There's nothing lovable about him. But Sam makes him lovable because you see here in this clip, like how much he loves him. Where is Rick? I don't know. I ain't seen him all night. When will he be back? Not tonight no more. He ain't coming. Uh, he went home. Does he always leave so early? Oh, he never. Well, he's got a girl up to the Blue Parrot. He goes up there all the time. Used to be a much better liar, sir. Leave him alone, Miss Elsa. You bad luck to him. Play it once, Sam. For all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Elsa. Play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. Oh, I can't remember it, Miss Elsa. I'm a little rusty on it. I'll hum it for you. Sing it, Sam. You must remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. By the way, can I tell you a weird fun fact about Dooley Wilson, the character who plays Sam? Yes. Well, is it is a fun fact that he never saw a piano before this movie because that is the <laughs> fakest piano playing I've ever seen. It's it's comically bad. That is not the fun fact, but that is a fun fact. That is a fun fact. My fun fact was that um, Dooley Wilson is the only person on this set who'd actually been to Casablanca. He had been oh, wow. to real Casablanca. Nobody else had ever been there, but he had been, and he'd been there for kind of a fun reason. I mean, he was truly, even though he can't play piano, worth anything. He was actually a really good jazz musician. And oh, so he's an amazing singer, yeah. He's an, Oh, his voice. His voice is amazing. So he went to Casablanca way back in the day to play jazz in Casablanca for none other than T.E. Lawrence. The real T.E. Lawrence. I'm not screwing up the name this time. T.E. Lawrence, R. Lawrence of Arabia. So Dooley Wilson played jazz in Casablanca for T.E. Lawrence our big star, wow. um, the real one, the real one. And like Casablanca made Arthur Dooley Wilson himself a really huge star. Like he suddenly overnight, people were so glad to see him on screen. They thought he did such a great job that he was getting 5,000 fan letters a week. Boom, overnight. Dooley Wilson was a huge star because of Casablanca. And this is the problem with the studio system. This is the problem with the studio system. They had no idea what to do with him and nobody else was allowed to make movies with him. And then there he was. Just there making nothing and his career fizzling a lot like it happened to Hattie McDaniel. Yeah, I was going to say like Hattie McDaniel, um, you know, and it's it's upsetting because everyone else in this movie goes on to kind of explode and and have such a big career. Um, Just an interesting fact while we're sharing facts. 
Um, you know the line played against Sam, never spoken in the film, right? Oh, that, yes. Uh, Ingrid Bergman says, play it, Sam. Play it once more for old time's sake. But play it against Sam is not a line. This movie is very misquoted. We'll kind of find a few of these examples. I think it might have come from this Jack Benny sketch. So in in many respects, I, I think that this is the equivalent of an SNL sketch when Casablanca comes out. Here is Jack Benny and Rochester um, doing uh, a little Casablanca scene. I'm having trouble with a girl. Just sit down, Crowley. Sit down and pour yourself a drink, will you? Okay, thanks. Ingrid. Ingrid. Go ahead, Sam. Play that song. I want to hear it once more. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A side that's just a little bit of the clip, but because I wanted to play the the song, the song is so funny. But throughout the entire sketch, they keep on saying, "Play it again, Sam. Play it again, Sam." Like he keep Jack Benny keeps on saying that. He didn't say it right there, but I wonder if that was maybe the confusion, or that's how it got locked into popular culture. It must be like, the way that I hear more cowbell every single time <laughs> that song comes on the radio. That would make sense. Although, did you know what the line was was originally written as when they were first writing this scene? Okay. All right. So this is supposed to come out of Humphrey Bogart's mouth to Sam as he walks up. He's just supposed to go, play it, you dumb bastard. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh-huh. Play it, you Yikes. dumb bastard. Does that roll off the tongue <laughs> or what? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to see him say that to, like, Ella Fitzgerald. There, oh wow, that really that really got me. That's a T-shirt. <laughs> Play it, you <laughs> dumb bastard. You know, even that song was not supposed to be the song. Like they didn't like it, but they got locked into it. Um, and again, we talk about happy accents all the time, and that really, you know, the song becomes so iconic. Uh, you can't help but think of, you know, again, as someone who's never seen that movie, that's what I know from this movie. Play it again, Sam, which is not even a line. That song, you know, and then that end monologue, Um, you know, this movie, but this movie is full of so many quotable, quotable lines. I mean, that's the thing I was really surprised about, too. Like throughout the whole thing, the the writing of it is just fantastic. That's so true. I mean, this script is just written within an inch of its life. It feels like it is written. They figured it out. They figured out how to make it work. I mean, some of the writers, a a gazillion writers worked on this. Two of the writers were these twins. They called the Epstein twins. And their quote about the process of writing the script is they're like, listen, every script is concocted, but Casablanca was really concocted. We sat down and we tried to manipulate an audience. And they did that. I mean, if they had in mind like, you know, not I am going to type the screenplay that represents my soul, but I am going to type the screenplay that just works. And I'm going to picture someone in the audience. And I'm going to picture making her laugh and I'm going to picture making her cry. I'm going to externalize everything inside of me and make it work on that person as manipulation. I think that gets kind of a bad rap because we as audiences are like, we're not like that. You can't manipulate us, but it it works, man. But that, I mean, that's a little bit what we talked about when we did American Graffiti and how George Lucas used that end to kind of make you leave feeling something that you may not have felt the entire film. Uh, just to put in some context uh, about the quotability of it, um, this film has six quotes on the AFI's list of top movie quotes. That's more than six? any other movie on the list. Six, six. out of a hundred? 
Uh, yeah, it's number five is Here's <laughs> Looking at You, Kid. Number 20 is Louis. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Number 28, Play It, Sam, Play. Uh, 32, Round Up the Usual Suspects. 43, We'll Always Have Paris. And 67, Of All the Gin Joints in All the Towns and All the World, She Walks Into Mine. I mean, that's, it's a, and they're all pretty much before, you know, 67 is pretty, you know, they don't even get into the back half of the hundred. That's the high up quotes. Which one do you find yourself saying the most? Huh. I mean, probably round up the usual suspects because I am in law enforcement and that's something that I do. I mean, that's <laughs> just a normal thing. No, I don't know if I, I don't know if I say any of these. I, I, don't, I They don't, they don't really, they don't really default to like, I really? don't know, like casual. Do you, do you find you say these? You, oh, one yeah. of those? Oh yeah. What do you say? All the time. Uh, the number one thing I say is we'll always have Paris, although it's usually not Paris. It's like we'll always have the oh, Los Angeles County <laughs> Carnival. We'll always I have that. the farmer's market on Sundays. You know, it's I think especially this summer where there's a lot we don't have, but we will have right. it again. I'm using we will always have a ton. We will always well, have browsing for tonight's dinner at Trader Joe's. I Well, you know what? I love that. And, you know. I'm thinking about these quotes and I realized that some of these quotes were improvised. Like here's looking at you kid was improvised by Humphrey Bogart. It was something uh, that he was saying to Ingrid Bergman as they were playing cards. He was teaching her to play poker. And, and that was something that that organically worked its way into a script. And then, you know, uh, when he goes, you know, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. That was all ADR'd at the end of the movie. They had already finished the movie. They came back in and they recorded that it wasn't on set. It wasn't in, it wasn't anywhere. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And this is a script, like you said, so many people work on it that there's a legend. The lore of this film is that Ilsa didn't know, or Ingrid Bergman didn't know who she was going to end up with. So she played it in the middle of the road because she really didn't know that's been disproven. Um, they went back and they saw how the film was shot. And that scene was actually shot um, before a lot of the other uh, scenes in the actual film. So that was just, you know, I think fun lore. I think that that's, just, again, uh, devaluing her acting. I mean, she really believed it. Like here, yeah. I mean, I found a clip of her describing it, saying that, no, that really is how it happened. Really? Yeah. Uh, they had the idea of Rick, played by Humphrey Bogart, and Rick's Cafe in Casablanca, and all the intrigues with the French and the Germans and... A love story, but that was a skeleton. There was no dialogue or anything. And we had no belief in it because we thought if you do this, make up the dialogue like that and me asking, but which one of these two men am I really in love with? Because, you know, Paul Hendrick played my husband mm -hmm. and Humphrey Bogart played the man that I'd fallen in love with in Paris. And they, they wouldn't tell me because they said, we haven't finished. We don't know how the picture's going to end. And we don't know with which man <laughs> you're going to end up. We're going to shoot it two ways. So that's how we went along. Naturally, we didn't believe that the picture was going to be the big classic it is today and what people remember me by. I mean, <laughs> that could have been the only picture I made as far as my Hollywood career is concerned. Interesting. Yeah, I mean... One of the stories I heard is that they told her they were going to shoot both endings. They're like, okay, we're going to do one take where you go off. You go off with Laszlo. This is your future. And then we're going to do it again where you stay with Humphrey Bogart. And we'll just decide what happens later in the editing room. 
And they shot the one where she goes off with Laszlo. You know, she's a little bit heartbroken, but she's like, you're right. This is my sacrifice I have to make to keep this man's spirits up because he can do something when it comes to winning the war. I mean, my God, they had three years of the war left when this movie came out. Three years left. I mean, the idea that this is all living history really blows my mind. And then that ending went so well that they're like, okay, fine, we can just stop there. So you see, now I'm believing Roger Ebert when he said that they went back and they found out that they shot that earlier on. I wonder if maybe when she signed on to do the film, there was this idea like it was up in the air and they may have told her before they shot that scene. But then when they actually went, like they didn't shoot the film in chronological order, that when they that she may have had that knowledge for most of the film. I don't know. Now I don't know. I want to believe the historians. But I I also think of the. A good Hollywood star would prefer to tell a story like that as well. It's a, it's a much more <laughs> lore-inducing story. I I think you're right. Although on set, Bogart, like when a reporter would come by the Casablanca set, he literally told a reporter that he thought the ending was baloney because no man would give up Ingrid Bergman. Oh, man. Humphrey Bogart, a real charmer. You know, we would have uh, actually seen a sequel to this movie if... Ingrid Bergman was available. They they had this film called like uh, Brazzaville. Um, so they at a certain point decided, well, can we recast her with Geraldine Fitzgerald? And then they're like, no, 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 we shouldn't do it. And so it wasn't until like, the 1990s when Michael Walsh wrote As Time Goes By that there became an official sequel to this film. But I think this movie might have been devalued by a sequel to see these characters together again. I don't know. I, I, I think you want, you want to envision them on an adventure, but you don't want to have them cross paths again. No, I mean, from what I've read about Brazzaville, and I think all they ever had written down was a 10-page synopsis, but what they thought was going to happen was that Rick would now become a freedom fighter. So he's a freedom fighter running around, and Ilsa would be conveniently widowed. Sorry, Laszlo, you're dead. Oh, and then the story was... is about both of them trying to get to America. Okay, which is like, got it. Oh, it's okay. But yeah, I mean, I think it should have just ended here. That's why I think it's so interesting that people have been maniacally protective of Casablanca. You know, every time anybody tries to redo Casablanca, any time they try to colorize Casablanca, there's this huge outrage. Even though, I mean, do you remember when they tried to colorize Casablanca when we were babies? It was Ted oh, Turner yeah. bought it. He was like, I'm going to make it in color. I found a commercial from them trying to justify why Casablanca should be redone in color. We invited these people to a Superstation TBS world premiere sneak preview. The screen on the right is Casablanca for the first time ever in color. On the left is the old black and white version. Why is almost everyone looking at the screen on the right? That's because they prefer Casablanca in color by a 9 to 1 margin. I really uh, sort of saw it uh, anew for the first time seeing it in color. It was impressive. It's very good. I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. I just don't like black and white off. I live in a color age. <laughs> I, I came in with the bias, and I, I, I kept watching the color, and I liked it. I watched the color the whole time. thought it was great. Better in color than in black and white. Oh, it's a classic. Can't beat it. I certainly think the colorization really adds to it, and uh, it's it's like seeing it for the first time, really. So play it again, Sam, this time in color. The world color premiere of Casablanca. 8.05 Eastern, exclusively on the Superstation, Wednesday, November 9th. First of all, whatever you're doing, stop it. 
uh, and find that commercial because it is like a cavalcade of mad TV characters doing <laughs> testimonials. I mean, I have never, I have never seen more charactery people in my life. It is the greatest hair outside of the reruns of Supermarket Sweep that are currently keeping me comfortable <laughs> company at night. Um, I, you know, it's interesting because this film you know, feels like a noir. You know, it has all a lot of the trappings of a classic noir. I, You know, seeing it in color there, I think colorization is such a weird thing anyway. Uh, but the movie is really used to amplify shadows and the, and the look and the club is so dark. It's beautiful. Like, as a matter of fact, um, the cinematographer was given a note early on in shooting when they were inside the club. They're like, it's too bright. It looks too much like a set. Like, make it darker, make it darker. And the movie has this really cool feel. And the use of shadows and uh, is, is uh, I just think the movie looks fantastic. And, and it is one of those films, like, if you told me, I don't know, I, I guess I... I just think it's so built to be seen in black and white. It, it seems that's what is bad about it. It's like you, to make a color, it feels like you're diluting the art. I mean, some of the stuff that I think this film does the best cinematography wise is really subtle. It, there's that whole point when um, the first time that there's this three-way conversation, right? Between Ilsa and Rick and Victor Laszlo. And the person who's in focus is Victor. It's Ilsa talking to Rick. They're talking to each other. They're where like the intensity is. But the camera stays sharp focused on Victor himself so that Ilsa's a little bit out of focus. And I appreciate that. That's a little bit of like triangulation of where you need to pay, be paying attention to yeah. the emotions as everything goes on. I mean, and then, of course, there's like big flourishes, like that moment when Sam brings that letter that Ilsa left to Rick and he, he hands it to him in the rain when they're at the train station. And you watch the ink kind of wash off and there's this whole just it's a little over the top, but it's so effective idea of, you know, vanishing memories of something that was lovely getting trashed. Oh, I thought it was more like those are her tears. Oh, I like that, too. I think that also yeah. works. And I think about my favorite image of this movie. I mean, it's so simple. To be honest, it's just Ingrid Bergman in the hat, that little curve of shadow curving around her forehead and down her cheekbone, just framing her perfectly. It's like she's got two halos, a dark halo and a light halo around her beautiful, perfect face. But by the way, she's so perfect in this movie that I was I saw that um, the people who worked on the script, the Epstein twins, they're like, you know, all we really need is an American girl with big tits. They're like an American girl with big tits will do in this role, which is like, what? No, but wow. just the way that they shot and lit Ingrid Bergman is absolutely uh, beautiful. Amazing. I mean, people who haven't seen that clip that we just played, it doesn't add anything for me to know that Sam is wearing a yellow jacket on the piano. Really? It's a lovely jacket, but... It kind of called out to me in a weird way. I was like, oh. Uh, but, uh, you know, they did something interesting, too, because she was really nervous about her forehead. Apparently, she had a very big forehead. Uh, oh, I have a big was... forehead. I understand. Uh, well, and, and they did so much to light and treat her in this way. And I think a lot of people think this may be the the film that she's best photographed in because the cinematography on it really like they took again, listening to Roger Ebert do his commentary. He said that he did an entire commentary with uh, a DP, a director of photography, and they only looked at in, uh, at her shots, looked at like how her shots were framed because each one is so artistically done whenever the light and the camera's on her and they could just they just pinpointed that. I thought that was really. Uh, really an interesting way to watch the film. I love that too, because you also, I mean, you are presented this woman who is just 
unbelievable and wonderful and romantic and adorable and everything. And yet what I appreciate about how she plays the role, like her actual performance, is just the level of integrity that I think Ingrid Bergman has. Because when you really strip it down to the essence, this is a fairly rare kind of script. This is a woman who's who basically slept with another man, I would say, in Paris, while her husband was in a concentration camp. And yes, she thought he was dead. And yes, she didn't know. But that's usually the kind of thing I feel like in a in a code film that makes you die accidentally. You know, like, oh, I cheated on my wonderful husband who's like the great savior of the war. And here he was a concentration camp victim who might rescue us from what is to come. And yet she plays it with such innate goodness, you know, that you're, you're like, you are allowed to find love again. And I think well, that just radiates from inside of her. Well, I mean, you don't have to be a virgin to be virtuous or to be worthy of love. And and I feel like this movie walks these fine lines. And I imagine like during the code times, like just having her in a bathrobe in the scenes in Paris, which, you know, uh, which look uh, slightly, um, you know, post-coital, uh, you know, are, are really... Uh, are really interesting to me. Like, you know, I, I like, they really do push the bounds here, you know? And in the, the original script, they even made her, uh, less, uh, virtuous than she was. She was living with an American businessman and it was Rick who left her when he found out. And when she comes to Casablanca, she's not even married to Victor. Like, so she kind of been, they really played with this character and made her, you know, I, I think for the time, really, that really exciting to do that. True. From everything I've read, The Code had real issues with this film, which is interesting. I mean, I feel like this is a film I would be like, I will show this. If you may, if you had me babysit your kids, I wouldn't feel, I might feel like I bored them if I made them watch Casablanca, right. but I wouldn't feel like I scandalized them if I made them watch right. Casablanca. And yet, you know, the studio people at the time, they were really freaked out. You know, there's a scene where it could be implied that Ingrid Bergman sleeps with Humphrey Bogart. You know, after they right. have this this kind of rendezvous back in his office and they're like, we have to make really sure it doesn't seem like that. There is a lot of really corrupt stuff, honestly, happening with Captain Renault. I mean, Claude Rains and this police captain he plays, the guy who spends his career in Casablanca trying to play at both sides, trying to keep the Nazis happy, trying to, you know, stay up positive on the surface. Maybe, maybe in a way you think he's like scheming to stay afloat so that he can do whatever he needs to do very deep down under the surface. Maybe he's figuring out his conscience as the movie goes on. It's hard to say, but I feel like the one area where his conscience is awry, even if he might be secretly aligned um, against the Nazis and the Vichy, is he's like, well, at least I'm going to use my power to make women sleep with me for visas, right? That's his whole subplot. He's like, send in that woman. She needs a visa? Let me tidy myself up in the mirror so she can come in. Oh, this young girl needs a visa even though she's married? Well, I'll set a date with her and we will see what happens. He's a real fucking bastard, if we're honest. He is a real play it, you dumb bastard. (laughs) Well, look, I believe that he would do that. You know, uh, the whole third act of the film, you know, only that person to say play it, you dumb bastard could pull off the plan he can outsmart them because I think he is uh, he is a bastard. Like, he can screw over everybody. I mean, he screws over everybody, even people who are his friends to a certain extent. You know, he, like, he's abandoning people. He's getting rid of things, you know. Yeah, he is the definition of pragmatic or selfish or <laughs> a lot of unprintable words. 
And again, that just really struck me how vibrant this must have felt in 1942. I mean, here, it's America's first real year at war. You know, we've now hit a year of being at this war. This is all still getting settled out. I mean, it blows my mind to think that this movie came out at a time where you didn't know for sure how the war was going to end at all. You didn't even know how bad necessarily the concentration camps were for somebody like Lazo. You were still... Well, I think that scar gives you a little bit of an idea, right? Like, they allude to it just a little bit. You were still playing it both ways when it comes to things like, can we get the Italians over here? What can we do with the French? Who's really our friend? How are we going to play this out? And for this film to take such a definite stance against the Vichy government, to have at the end, you know, uh, Renault's big moment is throwing away a bottle of water that says Vichy water. That yes. at a, at a time when most studios had only now just gotten used to the idea of even taking a side in the war, this is huge. Warner Brothers was, was always ahead of the game. I mean, the Warner Brothers very clearly, before everybody else, were willing to say that Nazi Hitler was bad. They were the first studio in Hollywood to pull their films out of production in Germany. They were the first people to say, we don't give a shit. We believe in right and wrong, even if this economy is a business. And so they yeah. were really well-placed to make a film that I feel like hit a lot of hot buttons in 1942. And they assembled a team that was willing to do it. I mean, Conrad Veidt, who plays the main Nazi in this movie, uh, who plays Strasser, Major Strasser, he was from Berlin. He was born near Berlin, and he was a guy who really spoke out a lot against the Third Reich because his wife was Jewish and because he knew that this was wrong. So when he realized he had to leave Germany... First, he went and he went to Britain. Then he came and he went to America. And when he got to Hollywood, he signed a clause saying, okay, guys, I know I'm a German actor. I know I just showed up in Hollywood. I want to sign a contract. I want to act. But I want you to tell me I will only play villains. He wanted to only play German villains because he was trying to get the word out using himself. He was like, this is my contribution to the war effort. I think that's part of what gives this film so much passion is that so many of the people, you know, from Curtis to Laurie himself, they were all people who had fled Germany. Laurie had to flee Germany because he had been asked to read this Nancy pamphlet aloud at, a, at um, a big speaking composium. And he read it in such a way that people knew he was making fun of it. So he, he had to get out of Germany. And it was like they were all, I mean, I, I guess a year and a half before this, I would have called it raising the flag. But now that the war had started, they were able to say, like, pay attention. We know what we're talking about. And, and that passion, I just find really, I find it really admirable, honestly. It's like if you couldn't fight in the war, you could make movies to help fight the war for you. Right, which is kind of the opposite of what we saw with the Vietnam uh, films that we talked about a lot on this podcast. Like if you couldn't fight in the war, you could pretend that you fought in the war and you could make up what you thought would happen there. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a different, I mean, except for Oliver Stone, I think there is like, there was like a, a real embracing of like, being a war hero. At the same way, I think that like almost being a cowboy oftentimes is embraced, you know, and then what's been so shocking is when you see these movies that treat the violence of the, of the old West. By the way, I was thinking about that a little bit. There's a little bit of Shane here, right? A little bit of, you know, with our, our, you know, there's a love and he's got to go and he's a violent man. You know, there's a, like, I thought there was a a little element to that. Uh, Shane and Casablanca share a little DNA. I could hear that. I mean, I definitely heard a little bit of cabaret, right? Mm. Especially when there's Mm -hmm. that scene with another Nazi German song. It's just, I mean, I find these movements so powerful. And what I loved about this one is, you know, the Nazis have taken over Rick's bar. They're playing their Nazi song. 
they're standing, they're acting like the bar is ours. And the great protest that Victor Laszlo does is he fights back with art. I love this scene. I want to listen to a little bit of it. And part of what I love is I think the scene gives actually the most empathy the movie has to Yvonne, that girl who's like off again, on again, dating Rick, because you get to see her sing the song and you get to see the tears in her eyes. And suddenly I think she becomes more human too. I love that scene. Um, it's and it and it. I think what you're saying and what they say in the film too is like, if he could do that here, think about how much damage he could do in the real world. And I think the one thing that we're not even talking about, which is a fun thing to even look at, this movie is completely ridiculous. Like on, uh, if we we really want to examine it, they would just arrest Victor. Like there's this whole thing about these papers, these magical papers. If you have them, you could travel wherever you want. But we're in the like. The Germans are here. They don't need a reason to arrest him, right? Like, there's like, it's, it's uh, a MacGuffin if there ever was one, right? Like, these papers don't exist. They're not real. They've never were real. Uh, but yet you never question it because I think you need to, to see it in this way. Like, you know, like, um, but I, I love that this movie could have such at its centerpiece, this fictional thing where we're talking about this true story or these true feelings and, and this idea of rebellion, but yet, you know, uh, I think one of this, the the playwright even said, like, I was waiting for someone to say to me, like, this makes no sense, and no one ever did, and so we just kind of kept it going, like, yeah, sure, that's what we got, you know. But it is, it's a this golden ticket, this Willy Wonka uh, golden ticket here that kind of makes them impervious to any action by the Nazis, which is. You know, at that point, even though it's before Pearl Harbor, I think they could have found a reason. I mean, they they killed Peter Lorre, no problem. I mean, you know, it's like they didn't have a reason there. I mean, they got a little little bit of a reason. <laughs> What's so striking about the dialogue, I think, in this movie is how polite everybody is. How polite mm-hmm. the Nazis are to Laszlo. How polite, you know, even, even Renault is to everybody. Like, how polite they are as they're all determined to get their way. Even Laurie. I mean, when Laurie tries to come to Rick and sell him these papers, get him to protect these papers, at least, what you hear so much in the way he talks is just this deference, this almost stifling politeness. You despise me, don't you? Well, if I gave you any thought, I probably would. But why? <laughs> oh, you object to the kind of business I do, huh? But think of all those poor refugees who must rot in this place if I didn't help them. Well, that's not so bad through ways of my own. I provide them with exit visas. For a price, Ugarty. For a price. <laughs> but think of all the poor devils who can't be to a nose price. Oh, I get it for them for half. Is that so parasitic? I don't mind a parasite. I object to a cut-rate one. Y- you know, I'll be honest. I found all of this politeness in Casablanca really chilling today because it kept making me think about how we put the right face on things or we say things in the right way and yet horrible evil can still be happening. 
You know, that just right. because evil is nice or evil comes with a meme of like evil giving you a hug, that evil is still evil. It, the, the layers of doublespeak in this, I mean, it's a little 1984-ish, honestly, the way that the, the Nazis speak to somebody like Laszlo, the way everybody's like, yeah. yes, indeed. Okay, fine. We shall be there tomorrow. I will wear my suit. And a giant fascist regime is taking place all around of us. And we're well, trying to fight back with manners. And I, and I think And I think that you see how quickly those facades fade, like at the end of the film, when uh, when Louis protects, you know, Rick, you know, you're like, oh, like everyone's just trying to get by, right? And if, if they can get by, like, you know, you get your wins where you can get them. And, uh, and I think that's what makes this, this movie so interesting. You open up, obviously, on that first scene of Humphrey Bogart playing chess. Um, and that's what this whole movie is. It's a chess match. It's, it's, you think something's going to happen and it switches, you know, and, and you think you have the upper hand and you don't. And, um, and all of a sudden the power shifts, uh, so quickly, you know, and that like, uh, maybe I'm reading into that, maybe Humphrey Bogart just like playing chess, but that is such a good game that kind of describes the cat and mouse of this town, this, this politeness, this, what move are you making and how are you doing it and what's going on here? And I, and I feel the end of the movie does a really great job. It, it's it's the only time I feel like real truth is spoken with the logic. You know, it's like, yes, we all know we're in this world and we're all playing this game, but this is what you have here is not a game. Like you can't, we can't play a game with what you're doing. You're trying to take down these, you know, this fascist regime and i i kind of love this moment of you know this monologue that that humphrey bogart has at the end at the airport it's like it lays everything out and it's i think the first time you see him open you know just totally open and and uh and i guess because in many respects he knows that that's the end of his that's him he's done like he's pulling off this plan and if it all went the way he thought i think he he was walking into suicide you know, uh, you know, unless he had already planned that he was always going to kill. He, he just didn't know. I mean, there's no way to know because everything kind of switches and switches and switches. And it just this is what happens, you know. Uh, so I think he was prepared for it. So I think he could speak his truth at the end. And what's so interesting about his character is I think you know, we usually are fed a lot of good guy and bad guy characters, right? Good guys, bad guys, good guys, bad guys. And I think what makes Casablanca so compelling to me and so rewatchable is that you have the bad guys, you have the Nazis, you know, you have Major Strasser, you have the absolute good guy, you have Victor Laszlo, you know, I am a survivor, I'm sacrificing myself and my happiness. But the main characters that we spend time with, you know, Humphrey Bogart and Claude Rains, they're neither. They honestly, you know, they might, they finally do come out on a side, but we're spending most of our time with people where we can't figure them out and we can't pin them down. And I think that Humphrey Bogart really tests the limits of how possible it is to be an apolitical person in a world that's incredibly politicized. I mean, he can keep saying lay off politics, lay off politics as much as he wants, but you can't do that forever. You know, right. uh, being apolitical is being political. I think you see that in, at, at the same time in you know, Captain Renault. I mean, that's why you, yeah, I mean, that's why you love Ricky Gervais so much because, you know, he is out there always just telling everybody how he doesn't believe in God. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. almost an act of uh, embracing God. Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a real example of telling power to power. I, I can't imagine 
that when this movie comes out, it's not beloved because very, very much like a lot of the films that we talk about on this show, it comes out in a moment where it's speaking to the zeitgeist of a nation, right? Like this movie comes out, it is important and it's echoing the way that people are feeling and, and they want to be in this world. Like, you know, what, what was the reaction when this comes out? You know, I'm trying to think of the right analogy because I don't want to say it was a little bit green booked. Oh. But it was a little bit green booked, a little bit green booked in the sense that people were like, OK, this really works as manipulation. They're like, I see right through this movie. You are a crowd pleaser. You have manipulated me well. I applaud you as much as I call out your manipulation. Good, sir. Like people wanted to be like, I am too smart for this movie, even if it worked on me. You know what I mean? Right. That was a lot of the vibe I got, because even the reviews that were positive they seem to be positive with well, one foot out. Like, so one of the reviews I pulled out is from James Agee at The Nation, who wrote at the time, you know, apparently Casablanca, which I must say I liked, is working up a rather serious reputation as fine melodrama. Why? It's obviously an improvement on one of the world's worst plays, but it is not such an improvement that is not obvious. Reigns, Bogart, Heinry Vine, Laurie Sakal, and a colored pianist whose name I forget is what he said. Whoa. Um, yeah. Uh, were a lot of fun. And Ingrid Bergman was more than that. But even so, Michael Curtis just has a 20s director's correct feeling for everything. You know, that everything, including the camera, should move, blah, blah, blah. And his bit players and atmospheric scenes are not even alien corn. Thanks to a friend, moreover, I can now quote two lines, which I snickered at, and then I blush to say forgot. One, Miss Bergman's plea to her husband to take the season's prize for exposition. Oh, Victor, please don't go to the underground meeting tonight. The other, more tender, is Miss Bergman's too, just as after she collapses on a sofa with Humphrey Bogart. From now on, you'll have to do the thinking for both of us, dear. Social psychiatrists might, I think, regard the following as sinister wartime symptoms. So it was like he could not give wow. in to the movie. And then what's interesting about James Agee is as this film gained momentum, you know, as it became this hit, as it became this, this, Oscar sudden surge of interest, you know, that, that became really passionate. He kept writing about it and he kept writing about his conflicting feelings. You know, right after it won the Oscars, he wrote, you know, Casablanca is still reverently spoken of as A, a fun movie and B, a quote, real movie. I still think of it as the year's clearest measure of how willingly, faute de mieux, I don't know what that means in French, faute mm. de mieux, do you have any idea? People will no. deceive themselves. Like, he really looked down on people for liking this movie, even as he liked it himself. I thought that was really interesting because I, I see that symptom happen today. You know, it's interesting that that was his reaction because, you know, in the 80s, they did an experiment where they sent the film script out to readers at a number of major studios and production companies under its original title. Everybody, everybody comes to Rick's, a great title. Uh, and the readers um, didn't recognize the script. They complained it was not good. You know, not this is not going to make a good movie. Uh, others gave complaints as it's too dated. There's too much dialogue. There's not enough sex in it. Um, so it was interesting, like a cold read, you know, engendered that reaction. It's also interesting that, you know, film readers never saw Casablanca. Um, <laughs> but also that uh, I, I wonder if that um, if that maybe inspired the 1996 Pamela Anderson movie, Barbed Wire, which is a retelling of Casablanca. Did you know that? No, I've never seen that. I've never seen oh, Barbed yes. Wire. 
Well, we have a How Did This Get Made about it. You can go on Stitcher Premium and listen to that. But it's um, many of the original characters are in it. Their genders are switched. But uh, it is it is a loosely, or I would say, it's based on Casablanca. You could you could watch it and you'll see it. You'll see it. Who's Pam uh, Anderson? Yeah, Pam Anderson. Bar who Blyer. is she? Who is she? Who's who's her alternate? I, I mean, I believe she's Rick. Wow. Is she quotable? Um, well, I'll, I'll let you be the judge. Let's see. Uh, don't call me babe. That's the big one. Don't call me babe. Uh, there is, uh, what are you doing here? Looking for a light. Got one? I don't smoke. Neither do I. Um, you know, and then, uh, you know, like, I wouldn't say they're quotable. They're, they're, they're very long paragraphs. Uh, but maybe here's, this is the end scene, you know. Where will we go now, Barb? Well, I hear Paris is nice this time of year. Mind if I tag along with you? I don't mind. I do believe I'm falling in love. And then Pam Anderson says, get in line. Huh, I do believe I'm falling in love. That yep. is the, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. I hear Paris is nice this time of year. Okay, I yeah. could use that. I hear Trader Joe's is nice this time of year, except it's not. <laughs> All right. I, you know, I thought you were going to say the Bronson movie, the Charles Bronson movie, Cabo Blanco. Whoa, wait. That, I didn't even know about that. Oh, you don't know about Cabo Blanco from 1980? Okay, here's a taste. What would happen if they sent you back to the States? The gas chamber. For openness. Why did you come to Cabo Blanco? I killed somebody. Who is he, Get? He's a Nazi that can run fast. And around here, he has enough clout to make the rules in Cabo Blanco. Tell Toretto to close Cabo Blanco. Nobody in, nobody out. <laughs> the Cabo wow. Blanco here is in Peru. So this is basically Casablanca in Peru called Cabo Blanco starring Charles Bronson. Amy, uh, before we get into our interview, I wanted to ask you, I mean, it's, it's our last episode on the AFI Top 100 list. Is there a final Simpsons? Did I win my bet? I mean, there has to be a Simpsons for Casablanca. <laughs> now, you predicted that there would be 85 Simpsons, correct? By the time correct. we made it to all 100 films. Which, if there is a Casablanca Simpsons, you win. I, you, you win exactly, which I find irritating. It's not even Price is Right rules. It's like you just won. <laughs> I did it. And you are absolutely correct. There's like a gazillion. Yes, I could Simpsons. only imagine. A gazillion. The one that I picked is from an episode called Natural Born Kissers. This is when uh, Homer and Marge go off to really rekindle, rekindle, rekindle. Can I say rekindle? That makes sense. Rekindle, rekindle, rekindle their relationship. And the kids are stuck with Grandpa Simpson. And Grandpa Simpson is watching an alternative ending to Casablanca. Louis, I think this could be the start of a beautiful friendship. Look out, Rick. He's packing heat. Good work, Sam. Come on, I'll buy you a falafel. Not so fast, Schmattenheimer. Hope you don't mind my dropping in. Not at all, sweetcakes. You know what to do, Sam. Unbelievable. 
say. Wasn't it great? And the question mark leaves the door open for a sequel. I've seen that movie ten times, and I never get tired of that ending. Oy, oy, oy. Where did you get this, you shrunken old hag, you? I'm just a little girl. <sighs> My studio produced Casablanca, all right? We tried to tack that happy ending on the picture, because back then, well, studio execs, we were, we were just dopes in suits, not like today. What are you talking about? I loved it. Ah, you're a sweet old gent to say that. This should be in a museum. Look, I'll tell you what. I'll give you 20 bucks to bury this thing again. This one, too. <laughs> uh, what you couldn't quite make out through the audio is that the happy ending is that Ilsa parachutes out of the plane, lands on Adolf Hitler, and they instantly get married. And then the old city producer hands Lisa and Bart a copy of the ending of It's a Wonderful Life, Serial Killer Spree Edition. If you listen to Unspooled, and especially if you listen to all 100 movies that we have covered on Unspooled, I think I can guess that you like classic movies. And if you like classic movies, our honored guest today probably doesn't even need an introduction to you, but I'm going to give him one anyways. He is Ben Mankiewicz. He's a host of TCM. He is the classic movie guy. And also, by the way... You might know that he and his family are basically all over this list. I mean, his grandfather wrote Citizen Kane. His uncle wrote All About Eve. And he himself is one of the smartest minds in the classic film business. Welcome, Ben Mankiewicz. Ben, I am so excited that you're on the show. I mean, I want to ask you, like, we have now gone through all 100 films on the list. From the number one to number 100, you know, from all the way from uh, Citizen Kane to Swing Time. And I want to ask you. I know that you have a little bit of family bias on this, but is Citizen Kane your pick for the number one film of all time? I mean, you know, I, I never entirely know how to answer that question. I mean, if you're taking, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, Sight and Sound put, put uh, Vertigo ahead of right. Casablanca. And that's an easy call for me. I don't really like Vertigo. And I don't understand why people get so excited about it. And when I hot take, I appreciate that. uh, And I don't, and I don't mean, I don't think it's good. I just mean, I mean, I, I'd say it's, uh, you know, off the top of my head, 138, you know, I just like, it shouldn't be, it's very good. It's not, it's like my sixth favorite Hitchcock. In that question, I'd put Kane one. And I think it's this sort of brilliant piece of filmmaking. I do, but it's certainly not the movie I enjoy most which might be the movie we're talking about now, you know, this sort of, this is, this is when studio filmmaking hits a grand slam with two outs in the bottom of the ninth to win five, four, you know, it's a, this is perfect. I get it. There are moments when it's a little schmaltzy, but I love manipulative schmaltz when it doesn't feel manipulative. I think we're talking about this balance all the time, especially with the AFI list where it's the popular choice and the critical choice, right? Uh, I think many people that we talk to that listen to our show have not seen Citizen Kane. They're, oh, I never saw it. Oh, it's so good. I, I finally get to watch this film. But most people, I would argue more than 90%, has seen Casablanca. And oh. I feel like that's like this interesting distinction on this whole list. You know, like what people love. I mean, I think it's the Shawshank Redemption of it all, too. Like people, I know so many people. I think that's number one on the IMDb best movies of all time. Like, yeah. yeah. So... You know, I don't know if it's familiarity or like, do you find that too sometimes that like that the films that people are that are played the most get them get the most love or, you know, like do you, yeah. do you come across that at all? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I mean, of course, they're played the most because 
people love them the most and people love them the most because they're played the most, right? I mean, right. That, that, those, those things feed each other. I mean, it is shocking to look at that IMDb list, which obviously is incredibly unscientific. It's, you know, yeah. I mean, I think the Joker's in the top 20. And <laughs> Right. I got it. And but, it'll yeah. stay there forever, Paul. That's right. But, the, but there are movies that, um, you know, mostly they got good movies. I mean, The Godfather and, and Godfather 2 are like two and four. But, right. you know, and, and, it, and that list doesn't, there are not enough classic movies on there. But for some reason, like 12 Angry Men, which is brilliant, somehow that cracked the top 10. Like a, right. Like not <laughs> cast. Like, so I, I, I love that list. And I, Shawshank is a perfect example because the end of Shawshank is incredibly manipulative and delivering exactly what you want. But it's perfect, right? Like right. I mean, and of course, and, you know, and, and, and Shawshank is a perfect example for me of, this world that we have, and to what you were saying, Paul, this world that we have opened up to us where you sit down and you want to watch a movie and you have basically, if you're willing to spend $2.99, anything you want, anything right. at all that you want, you know, um, with very rare exceptions. And you look and that list gets overwhelming and, uh, and you think, ah, you know what, I'll watch Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Time. Uh, I, that's what movies do. Like they comfort us. And that is a that's a comfort move. But I appreciate that you're talking about this feedback loop because that seems to come up too so often on this list. You know, movies like Wizard of Oz that become more popular over time as people just like get to see them again and again and again. And I'm curious, like you show such a range of things on TCM. Are there films that you're like, this would crack the top 100 if people just saw it more, if people were more aware of this film? Yeah, totally. I mean, I was just looking, I was talking to, uh, I don't remember, yes, we did, a, we're doing feel-good films in uh, in July and, uh, you know, sort of movies that, I mean, first of all, I think almost all movies that, that make you, I care about the feel part of feel-good more than, than right. the good part. Like, uh, it's okay if a movie's tragic. If I feel it, then it then it has moved me in a significant yeah. way. So, I mean, to me, like, Paths of Glory, I'd, I'd watch that to feel good, even though I'd be outraged at the end of Paths of Glory. <laughs> so I don't know if Paths of Glory is on the list. It's but, not. It uh -huh. is not. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's Kubrick's best film. It's the best war film ever made, just about maybe maybe Algiers. But The, the Shop Around the Corner is one of the movies we have. And I guess, you know, it was, it was considered by the AFI, but it's not on the list. But, I mean, you know, I think it's the, if you want to call it a romantic comedy, it's like, you know, the best romantic comedy there is. So yeah, look, man, it's a list, right? It's totally subjective. I have a question about that. Do you feel in, we talk about this a lot on the show, the idea that comedies don't always get their due, right? We, I think we are more often embracing classic comedy, you know, whether it's Harold Lloyd or the Marx Brothers, but we're very reticent to kind of move forward and embrace something like When Harry Met Sally or something like that. Like, do you notice that as well, that sometimes comedies that are past a certain, like, you know, in the 1950s kind of are a harder sell to be deemed as classics? Yeah, I think some of that comes down, no question. I think that comes from the Academy, which has always been really uh, hesitant to, uh, you know, to nominate a comedy for Best Picture. And then if it is, it's a heady comedy like, uh, like Annie Hall, you know. Right. Not that Annie Hall's not funny. It really is. But, you know, I mean, you know, better than anyone or as well as, as the top tier of people, how hard comedy is to do well. And comedy done right ought to be honored more. It ought to be more films on that list. On, you know, things that are outdated and need to stay in the past. You know, like we've had, uh, for example, Blackface was in Swing Time. And we've mm -hmm. been having that conversation on the show. Like, how do you... 
do you kick the things out of the culture? How do you, do you frame them? Like what's the best way just to handle something like that? Well, you know, I think that this uh, uh, discussion, and obviously a really valuable discussion, and there's too much talk about discussions in the world, by the way. I mean, you know, sometimes <laughs> talk, uh, let's do something. Um, but it's really, really, it's been great uh, because it is, I hope, highlighted what we do. And I don't mean that in a promotional way, but in a, like, I want people to recognize the value that TCM brings, which is, you know, sort of being the guardians of, of you know, 80 years of, uh, of movie history. We put things in historical context, in Hollywood context, um, with the curation. And then we form this right. connection with the audience. And so this curation and context has never been more valuable than it is now. And I hope people appreciate it. I think HBO Max, and granted, I got you, they're the same company. Um, but I think they did the right thing to pull Gone with the Wind. And then they have now put it back with uh, an introduction from one of our hosts, Jacqueline Stewart, who's a professor, a, a film professor at University of Chicago. And she's got a, you know, a four minute sort of discussion about putting that in context, putting the history in, acknowledging how important it was. And that holds true for, for every single film like Swing Time, like Holiday Inn that have blackface in it, which frequently just comes out of nowhere, right? Because it's just a joke. Ha ha ha. Everybody knows this is a joke. We yeah. all, everybody laughed at it. So sometimes you don't even see it coming. Uh, and uh, so uh, The Littlest Rebel, Shirley Temple, she's in blackface. It's crazy. Uh, but we got to point that out and we got to add the context. And I think the context is more than just saying, oh, this is what happened in the Times. Uh, be aware of it. Here's the movie. You got to do a little better than that. I mean, I always find it so wonderful to keep realizing that the past is never just the past. You know, that even just, just this summer, like we have your awesome podcast on Bogdanovich that's happening, which has been so fun. The plot thickens. Happening at the same time is also Karina Longworth's series on Polly Platt. And, you know, they're talking about films and things that happened 50 years ago. And it still feels like there's things to learn and pull apart and put together. It, it, always, it feels like they're as modern and important of stories to be telling today. I think there's never been a time where people, a wide swath of people, and it's probably because the Access podcast like yours and Karina's, and the one we did that, um, you know, there's so many movie podcasts and many of them are good. This is sort of a discussion and a celebration of movie history and these behind the scenes details, the things we've been doing at TCM, but I almost feel like we got to up our game, which is good. Right. I mean, you know, when you're the, when you're the only game in town, right, you sort of get into a pattern, but here there are other people who've entered this world in a different way, not with a channel uh, on television, but, yeah, people are really interested in this stuff. And I think particularly for Polly's story and for Peter's story, and because I believe it, you know, but the era between 1967 and 1976, the best 10 years of American movies ever, and including, you know, 1939 to 1948, you know, where Casablanca and Kane falls in, and Grapes of Wrath, and, you know, How Green Was My Valley, so many, and, you know, Best Years of Our Lives, so many uh, great, great uh, pictures. So, but that era, you know, when these new filmmakers and, and Bogdanovich was every bit Scorsese and, and, and Coppola and Friedkin, uh, he just had a fall, which made him an interesting topic for the documentary. You know, uh, just to kind of talk a little bit about Casablanca for a second. Uh, I know you say it's, it's one of your favorites. Um, did you know that they were trying to remake this movie at one point with Francis Truffaut in like 1973? No, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I'm kind of always amazed. Like, I'm amazed at these movies that we love so much that why aren't they remade? 
do you think this is a movie that could be remade or do you think this is a movie that, you know, could ever be done or is it better to kind of just let this be its own thing? If I wanted to appeal to the most TCM fans and most classic movie fans, I would say you can't remake Casablanca. The original's perfect. But I really don't mind efforts to remake great movies. And I, I argue with my brother who says, I, which I think is more traditional, that you should remake bad films. You know, right. like, like Logan's Run, which is bad, but is a really cool sci-fi idea. Yeah. And now that we can do it better, like, man, that would be great. And there have been like four or five attempts to, to get that going. Um, but you, Rob Marshall, who I like a lot, uh, who's a big classic movie fan, the director, uh, you know, Chicago. Rob, uh, Rob had a plan to remake The Thin Man uh, years ago uh, with yes. uh, uh, Johnny, Johnny Depp. Depp. Yeah, and, um, and there was, you know, this on Twitter, at least for me, you know, there was like, how can you do this? Thin Man is perfect. It's, it's William Powell and Myrtle Loy and Asta, and it's no one, and it's nobody else. And I think, no, man, all this is going to do is get you excited to watch the original. And like with Polly and our podcast, I mean, with Karina's podcast and our podcast, get you talking about, like, I think it's good. Like, how is that not going to help the thin man? And if it right. goes, it just reminds you, boy, they really, you know, the, 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 when, when studio filmmaking worked, it was great. Um, so I, I don't mind it. I, Casablanca, because of its cultural significance, would be very tough. And you're putting yourself, I don't know any director, screenwriter, actors who would necessarily want to play take on that role you know who would want and actors who would be like yeah i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna play rick blaine and i'm gonna i'm gonna play it better than bogey right you know, you're, asking, <laughs> you're asking for ridicule even i've always wanted to ask you this um i know that you grew up in a house with a lot of talk about movies a lot of talk about classic movies but i'm ever i've always wondered like when you were a preteen were you ever just snotty and like, no, I don't want to watch anything in black and white. I just want to watch the Goonies get away from here with all of that classic Hollywood stuff. So a couple of things. One, I was really never snotty. I was a pretty great kid. I was too shy to be <laughs> snotty. I was very, um, when I had a girlfriend in, uh, uh, like after my sophomore year of high school, freshman year of high school, and I came home and I, my friends were spread out. So I, I was on the phone to this girl a lot and I was on the phone to uh, my friends a lot. And there was like a $350 phone bill. And my mother went berserk. And, How do you do this? My brother was there. God bless him. 12 years older, Josh Mankum, Stateline, NBC. And he goes, Holly, calling my brother by her first name. He goes, shut up. She goes, this kid doesn't drink. He doesn't do drugs. He calls if he stays out late. He's helpful. He loves you. He helps you, supported you since your husband left, since our father left. Um, uh, yeah, he likes to talk to his friends on the phone. Pay the bill and shut up. And I was like, oh, my God, this is, the, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. So uh, so that's the first answer. I like I knew about my uncle Joe and my grandfather and Citizen Kane. And they but the movies, they weren't. So I was like 15 years old before I saw a classic movie that meant anything to me. It was North by Northwest, which my mom sort of made me watch. You'll like it. You'll like it. And in my head. I used to tell the story before I was smart enough to know this, that I was like, yeah, this first black and white movie I ever really liked except it's in color. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when I got the, the TCM job, I mean, I, it turned out, I mean, I was, I was unprepared for all that it is. So, I mean, I grew into it and God bless him for letting me, for letting me grow into it. I thought I was sort of a, I knew a lot. And then I met everybody there. <laughs> but I think that that's also like a good thing about, you know, we found this on this podcast as well. I, I am a movie fan who has 
gigantic blind spots because I grew up at a time where, look, everything that I saw as a, from a 10-year-old to a 25-year-old, I saw everything that came out, but I didn't go backwards and see everything right. that came out before. And I think, you know, what you do so well, and I think what this, we're talking about this a lot, is just this idea that it films should always be an entry point. They, they shouldn't be like, oh, no, no, if you didn't get in early enough or you didn't know it. And I think at the at the root of it, this is, they should be a joy to watch. They should be a pleasure to watch and they should open up more doors. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, the the nostalgia, I say this a lot, but I really think it's true. You know, I mean, I got some sports memorabilia, you know, where you, you know, I got like my favorite baseball players, old 7-Eleven cup, and then I bought six <laughs> more of those, you know, and uh, so, but that's not what nostalgia is. That's just memorabilia. You know, nostalgia is this visceral emotional connection to your past and, or your parents' past, your grandparents' past, an era that you care about. And movies do that. I mean, you know, most of what we know about how things looked in the 1920s and 1930s, how men and women dressed in the 40s. I mean, we get, we learned that Casablanca, right? That's yeah. this is and and you know, it may is not exactly a newsreel, but we don't have the newsreels available to us. We we learn it from movies. Movies are a tremendous teaching tool. People are responsive to visual media, but mostly it's this visceral connection that matters to us, right? That connects yeah. us. You know, you, you don't know, like you watch a movie, Paul, and you might think, you know, I, I'll make this up, you know, like you, you Saturday morning, you watch and it's a John Wayne thing. And you, at some point it may occur to you, like, you know, my grandfather loved West, and he yeah. probably, this probably meant something to him. And then you're feeling something that, you know, like music, like music that you care about music. We know takes people back. I think movies do it just as well or even better. I know you spoke about this, like being like this kind of home run hit at the bottom of the, the ninth, but like, what do you think makes this movie last? What do you think connects us to an audience still? I mean, it's, it's, it, first of all, it's set in the most dramatic time of the 20th century, right? Where even in this uh, little part of the war uh, in occupied France, in North Africa, you feel like the world is at stake, that freedom is at stake. Um, and then there's this brilliant, writing right this incredible script that four people worked on six and all but four people really worked on and crazily taken from an un, unproduced play um that it this show again studio filmmaking all these talented people bogart and 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 bergman and henry obviously but then this unbelievable supporting cast claude Rains, conrad fight all the little players uh you know uh uh, Marcel Dalio, who is the croupier and has in the, my favorite scene in the movie for, for many others too, you know, that when Bogey's like, nah, I'm not going to let Louis asleep with this young girl who just got married. I'm going to let this guy win at roulette and just does it subtly in a couple of words. That's not over explained. It's perfect. I cry every time, right? Every yeah. single time. And the way he looks at him, like, and then Rio Dalio says, you know, how we do tonight? He's like, well, a little worse than I thought we would. You know, uh, <laughs> so it's just, uh, it's perfect. Like it all, so many things could have gone wrong real quick. Uh, Seth Rogen was on Howard Stern like three years ago and uh, Howard asked him about uh, bad reviews. And he was like, I get it, man. Movies are so hard. I, uh, he goes, I, I'm every, so many things can go wrong. There's so many moving pieces. He said, I'm amazed when it's good. It stuns yeah. me when it's good. So here, man, it's just like, like I'm a gambler. It's like hitting a 10 team parlay. Everything fell together. The love story by Casey Robinson and the, 
uh, Howard Koch's uh, 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 sort of uh, the, the bare bones of it, uh, the political stuff, the war stuff, and then the bare structure from the Epstein brothers. It just, all of it is, it just, everything worked. And they didn't know that ending. It's alchemy, know? right? I mean, it really yeah, is. Right. It's like that's you right. take one piece out and it's not as good of a movie and it, you get Logan's run, you know, or I mean, that's right. but there that's is right. that like yeah. that idea where it's like, it, it, I am always amazed by that. Like uh, as somebody who, uh, has had to cast things and work on things like, oh my, I didn't get my first choice. And then you wind up your second or third choice is the person who gets it. And they do a performance that's so much better than you could have possibly ever imagined. I think you hear that all the time. It's like people come in and bring so much and make these little choices. And this movie too, like the background actors are all these great actors. You're, you're like, yeah, like yeah. they're just, everyone's yeah, bringing all these amazing, right. And they're all immigrants. All in, yes, they're all immigrants, yes. So here's some uh, last thing I'll say to you guys. I know you, I'm sure you got to go. I got forever, but I'm sure you got to go. So much of the credit here has to go to the producers. You know, producing a movie can mean a thousand things from giving some money or connecting people and then demanding a credit. That's why we see, counting executive producers, sometimes in a, in a big movie, you'll see 20 <laughs> people listed there. But how Wallace produced this movie, Wallace, as these, you know, again, these you got four talented writers working on the story as it goes, they don't know the ending. Curtis, a great director, an underrated director, but Wallace kept everybody going in the right direction. He herded that movie. Um, and that he almost deserves more credit than Curtiz or anyone else from taking the for constantly juggling and never dropping the ball. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Ben. This has been fantastic to talk to you. Uh, what a pleasure. And we definitely want to make sure people check out your podcast, uh, which is all up now, right? It, it, all of it. Is, yeah. Uh, the, the, the plot thickens uh, from, uh, from TCM. Yeah. It's a, uh, I hope people like it. We really love to make it. Uh, you definitely check out Ben's podcast uh, with the amazing uh, Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, it is called The Plot Thickens Wherever You Get Your Podcasts. This is our final episode of season one. But before we wrap it up, we thought it would be great to do a recap of everything that we've watched, what stood out to us, what we really want to get rid of. And we want to open that up to you as well. So next week, as we recap our journey on the AFI list, we are going to give you a challenge. Can you cut 50 off the AFI list? Can you just live with only 50 on the list? It's a hard cut, but we have to make room. And I feel like that's, uh, I mean, a pretty bold way to jump into it. What do you think, Amy? Listen, we live in a place where we know well that one of the things that happens in nature is there's a huge fire and then things rebuild and regrow. And they are fresher and stronger than ever. And that sometimes you got to slash and burn in order for new regrowth. So I'm, I'm, I'm all about a bold move here because it's not like you're saying we hate these films. You're just saying there's a lot of great films though. Come on, there's a lot of great films and they don't all have to star Jimmy Stewart, but at least a couple do. Yeah, and you know, I think we'll talk next week about what we use to determine our 50. And I have a couple of thoughts as well because when I'm making this list, I'm gonna look at it and say, all right, does Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid belong on this list? Is there a better George Roy Hill movie that could go on this list? And if there is, if it was The Sting, I'm going to kick Butch Cassidy off because I want to make room for the other one. So there is a little bit of creative thinking you have to have here. Like if you want to replace Swing Time with Top Hat, then Swing Time's got to come off. You know, you can, you know, you can replace different films with ones that don't exist on the list so far. So really think about it. 
It's true. But make your 50. It's really uh, going to be a fun thing to do. And uh, and Amy and I, I think we should also maybe challenge ourselves to give our top 10 and our bottom 10. Ooh, our bottom 10. I definitely know a couple of those. So Amy, uh, we will see you next week uh, for our, our traditional final episode of this pod uh, before we launch into season two. Uh, but a big thank you to, I mean, before, you know, just while we're here, a big thank you to everybody who makes this show possible behind the scenes. And that is our producer, Josh, who has been absolutely amazing cutting down those first episodes, which are rambly and crazy and us trying to figure out what we were going to do. Uh, just been amazing throughout this entire process. And and I would say, uh, Devin, another integral part of the show, besides us being our sound designer, uh, a resident uh, movie aficionado and, and feeding us so many great tidbits that you're never really often hearing on mic, but always uh, giving us so much uh, uh, input and, uh, and everything. So uh, we have the best team ever here and everybody at Earwolf. But, uh, you know, Very this much. is it. This is us four. And that's why we won the Cinephile Game Show. And so, you know, we have this power. (laughs) Technically, your years as a blockbuster video store clerk won you the cinephile game show. I never played that well in my life. I love Josh and Devin so much. I love you guys so much. (laughs) So uh, this is great. So we'll see you next week for, um, that's it, the top 50. And uh, and then we'll kind of explore a little bit more about what we're going to be doing in season two. And uh, our big announcement about our game show, which we've teased a little bit. So, so much uh, coming up. Uh, for Unspooled. So don't don't you worry. We'll be back to doing real movies in, in just a little bit. We will. But you know what? I think we should go out the way Casablanca goes out. Should we just play that ending, you and me? Should we saunter Absolutely. off into our Zoom yes. screens, into the distance? Let's do it. Into our Zoom screens. I love it. Goodbye, y'all. We will see you at our recap of season one. Done a lot of it since then. It all adds up to one thing. You're getting on that plane with Victor where you belong. But Richard, no one. Now but... you've got to listen to me. You have any idea what you'd have to look forward to if you stayed here? Nine chances out of ten, we'd both wind up at a concentration camp. Isn't that true, Louis? I'm afraid, Major Strauss, I would insist. You're saying this only to make me go. I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we... We lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. When I said I would never leave you. And you never will. I've got a job to do, too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Hills, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Now, now. is looking at you, kid.